I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them uh, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. Two weeks ago, we started a new series. At least I hoped it was starting a new series, but then I wondered if we were ever going to get to message number two. But um, a new series entitled Suffering, a Theology, a Hope. And we considered uh, the beginning and the end of suffering. We looked at Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. And I told you as we studied the scripture together that when you suffer, it is a warning that your sins have separated you from God. That your rebellion against his authority in your life has made you his enemy. And that you stand condemned before his judgment seat. This is what suffering teaches us. But, uh, so we could say in this way, every time that we suffer, we are tasting a small part of the judgment for our sins. But, I share with you, from Revelation 21 and 22, that the Lord is going to do away with all pain and suffering, all death, all tears, for those who believed on Jesus Christ and been saved by his blood. Those things were not a part of the original creation, and they will not be a part of the new heavens and the new earth, which God will make for his people to enjoy. Now, I'm sure that what I said brought up some challenging questions about the subject of suffering, especially when I said that God is the one who brought suffering into the world. We can't blame the devil for it. He doesn't live independently of God. He's a creature like you and like me in some ways. And I hope that as we go through this series over the rest of uh, this month and in next month, and we'll see exactly how long it takes us. But I hope that as we go through this series, I will be able to answer some of your questions. But I'll tell you right up front that I can't answer all of them. There are a lot of questions that I won't be able to answer, at least to your satisfaction. That's just the nature of God and how he works in the world. And so what I want to do today is try to build on the foundation of the last message by asking a question that seems, at least to me, to kind of jump out of the page. When I read Genesis 1 through 3, and I read Revelation 21 and 22, here's the question that I would ask. The way I, here's how I would put it anyways. If God can eradicate sin and suffering from the world... And if, indeed, he will do so at some point in the future, why has he not already done so? If God can eradicate sin and suffering from the world, and if he is going to do that, why has he not done it yet? Let's pray and ask God's help as we examine the scripture today and hopefully begin to sort out a little bit of an answer to this question and maybe some of the related questions that may come up. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of meeting together. We do not take that for granted. We realize there are a lot of factors that can come into play that affect our ability to meet as a, as a church. And we thank you that today we're able to be here, even if it's just uh, a small group of us. We pray that you administer to those who are not here today, who are not able to be a part of this gathering. Father, some of them may be watching us online even now. I pray for your ministry in their lives today, uh, that you'd be, uh, your spirit would give them comfort and encouragement, um, physical strength and healing if that is their need. Uh, certainly, we pray for spiritual uh, instruction and guidance and teaching, uh, and even, Lord, that they would be rebuked and confronted maybe if there's some sinful thoughts or, or attitudes or actions in their life today. And Father, we pray that you would restore them to us again soon, that we can all be together here. Um, we thank you for those who are here today. 
and pray that you would minister to their need. Most importantly, Lord, I recognize that today I do not have the ability to do what you've called me to do. Father, I realize the weight of this truth, the weight of the teaching of Scripture on this subject is so great. And I pray that you would help me to rightly and accurately handle the word so that your people can hear you speaking rather than me. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me strength, <clears throat> strengthen my voice. And Father, I pray that you would use me as your instrument today to accomplish your will and the lives of your people. And that even through this, you might call some to yourself who do not know you as Savior, that they would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ today. We pray for your grace to accomplish this work. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question we want to look at this morning, if God can eradicate sin and suffering, if he is going to do that, why has he not yet done so? And as I think about this question, and I uh, excuse me, try to reason through it myself, it seems to me that it would have been easy for God to just destroy Adam and Eve after they sinned. You know, nip it in the bud, so to speak. He could have destroyed them and replaced them right, with another first couple, a second first couple. I don't really want to say that. At least in my thinking anyways, God didn't need to curse the rest of creation and have them pass down their sin nature to their descendants. And in, again, this is, I'm speaking here, my own, my own human reason here, okay? So please understand here what I'm doing. But this has the added bonus of making it so that the only... Only the two people who actually sinned would pay for their sin. Right? There wouldn't have to be other fallout and other suffering and other um, sin and experience of that as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. <coughs> Sorry, I'll try not to do that. <clears throat> but as I think about this... <clears throat> If God didn't want to do that, okay, maybe he didn't want to just wipe out Adam and Eve and start over with a new couple. Maybe he wanted to do a different approach. But I think about the history of the world from the beginning until now. God could have stopped this train at any point along the track, right? I mean, why did he wait so long? Why is he still waiting? We think about the world around us. I mean, think about what you have seen this last week, just the last seven days. Think about the suffering and the evil that we have seen in our world going on in a place like Afghanistan within the last seven days. That didn't have to happen, right? At least in my thinking, there's no reason that God needed to allow that. He could have stopped that. He could have stopped all of this before that happened. And if he's going to eradicate sin and suffering, why not do it sooner rather than later? Why allow everything to transpire the way that it has? Well, that's why I brought you to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Because I believe that in Romans chapter 8... We get a glimpse into the mind of God on this subject. <clears throat> now, in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he is drawing some conclusions here. The first seven chapters of this letter, he has been explaining the nature of salvation, how our salvation works. Um, and here in this chapter, he is drawing some conclusions from that. And so he begins the chapter talking about what the Spirit of God has done for us that the Old Testament law could never do. 
The Spirit of God changes our minds. He changes our hearts to cause us to love the things that God loves. The, the Spirit of Christ comes to live inside of us when we get saved. And Paul says that the same Spirit is going to raise up our bodies from the dead. This same Spirit is the active, um, the active uh, person in our adoption, Paul says, into God's family. That by this Spirit, we become sons and daughters of God. And when you become a son or a daughter of God, you receive all of the benefits, all of the rights that accompany that relationship. And I want you to look at verse 17, because here's our starting point today. In verse 17, Paul makes an observation that is crucial. He says... Speaking of our adoption as sons and daughters of God, he says, if children, in other words, if we are children, then heirs, uh, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. You see, sons and daughters get to look forward to an inheritance. That's kind of part of what it means to be a son or a daughter. And that's a very important truth. It's true in, in the world of physical families today, right? If you have a son or daughter, then when you die, they will receive whatever inheritance you have, whatever material goods you have in this life will be passed on to them. And the, the reason that they get those things is that they are your son or daughter. That relationship qualifies them to receive the inheritance. Well, the same thing, Paul says, is true in our spiritual family. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose again for you so you could be made righteous, if that's true, then you have received the Holy Spirit and he has made you a member of God's family. This is great news, Paul says. This means that you and I can expect to receive an inheritance from God. It's not presumption. It's not being greedy. It's what a son or daughter has the right to expect from their parents because they're a son or daughter. Now, Paul says that this, there in verse 17, he describes this inheritance as being glorified together with Christ. And I would suggest to you that being glorified together with Christ is a shorthand for all of the blessings that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22 in the last message and more. Because that's not exhaustive, that just gives us a taste of it. This is what we said last week, that one day God is going to remove sin and suffering and we will enjoy a life of uh, life with him and peace forever. Amen. But, but there's one, one little fly in the ointment, so to speak. Okay. It's right there in the middle of verse 17. Notice what Paul says there in verse 17. He says, right in the middle, if indeed we suffer with him. Did you catch that? Right in the middle of being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ and being glorified together with Christ, right in the middle of it, <clears throat> if indeed we suffer with him. And the way that Paul says it here, I think indicates that our future glorification with Christ is in some way dependent on our present suffering. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. You see, the, the that part is dependent on the if part. That's the way if-then statements work. The if part has to come true for the that part to come true. Paul says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. 
Right? There, there's going to be glorification. There is the hope of the inheritance and all the blessings. But Paul says before we can be glorified with Christ, we must suffer with him. So, to take this one step further, we could say it this way. God's plan to one day end suffering requires that today we endure suffering. Now, before we start crying out, wait, that's not fair. <laughs> we got to listen to what Paul says. And I think what Paul says there, beginning in verse 17, but then really he, he begins to explain this in verse 18 and down to the end of the chapter. Because he is going to explain here that our present experience of suffering is intended to give us hope. It's intended to give us a confident expectation in this promise of future glory. And so in verse 18, Paul makes a comparison. He says, I consider the present or the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is a kind of mathematical calculation. All right? Which one is greater? Paul says, is our present suffering of today or the glory that is to come greater? And Paul, as he compares those two, he finds that the glory that is going to be revealed in us is infinitely greater than the sorrow we now have. Right? I think about the last verse <coughs> of the hymn Amazing Grace. You know that, that hymn, the verse that we often sing is the last verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. In other words, we spend 10,000 days in the presence of the Lord, and even after spending 10,000 days, there will be more days yet to come than there are that have passed. No matter how awful the pain, the injustice, or even the horror that someone might face here on earth, it is temporary. And the joys and glories of heaven will continue on into eternity, never ending. There is no comparison. The glory to come is greater than the present suffering. And this is objectively true. So we can do a mathematical... I'm, I, I was a math teacher and I love math. So I can do... I can write it out on a piece of paper. I can prove it to you. I can show you mathematically that the infinite glory to come is greater than the finite suffering today. But it doesn't really change how we feel today, does it? Knowing that. I can know that. And yet today is still really hard, right? The suffering is still painful, difficult. And sometimes so painful and so difficult that it seems like it is everything. And so Paul here begins by saying, I can, we can do a comparison, a mathematical comparison, and I can tell you the glory to come is so much greater. But he, but he continues, though, here, and it's important, because what he does then is he turns our attention, he wants to prove this to us. He wants to show us this in a way that we can get, in a way that will make a difference today in how you feel about your suffering, okay, and how you feel in the midst of your time. And here's what he says in verse 19, he, he challenges us to look at the world around us. He says this, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. He says that the creation is waiting expectantly for the day of our glorification. Look around the world, Paul says. Look around at the creation around you, and you will see that creation is waiting for the day when you, as a Christian, are glorified together with Christ. Now, in verse 20, he, he continues to explain this. He says, It was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, not by its own choice. But this makes sense because the world of animals, plants, and elements is not thinking. It does not choose. 
but God cursed it. You see, the world didn't choose to be cursed. The world didn't choose to become a place of, of difficulty and trial and pain and suffering. God cursed it. That's what I think Paul says it very clearly. The, the, he says the creation was subjected. This is passive. It, it happened to the creation. Creation didn't choose this, but it was subjected. And of course, we would ask the question, by whom? Well, the, we, we looked at that last time. By God. It was subjected to futility. But notice, because of him who subjected it in hope. So in other words, God subjected the creation to the curse. God cursed the creation in hope. Because the creation itself expects to be delivered. Notice verse 21. It expects to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So Paul says this, look at the created world around you and you will see a world that is waiting with earnest expectation for its deliverance. And then in verse 22, he says, just listen. He says, we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together. <clears throat> if you listen, Paul says, you can hear the world groaning and laboring in pain like a woman about to give birth. See, when we look at this world, we can see that something's just not right. <coughs> Things don't work the way they should. Things break down. Things wear out. They don't cooperate. And scientists, as they study the world, have developed a, a, a law, they call it the second law of thermodynamics, that they use to try to explain and describe what we're seeing when we see a world that doesn't work the way that it should. We call it entropy. And it's a measure of the amount of disorder in a system. And so whenever scientists measure entropy, how much disorder there is in a system. You know what they find over time? Entropy always goes up. Disorder always increases. Always. That's the second law of thermodynamics. That entropy, disorder, is always increasing. Things are all progressing. But they're not progressing upward and forward. They're progressing downward. They're becoming less and less useful all the time. And so what, what do we have to do? We constantly have to try to overcome this downward trend in the natural world. We use energy, our own energy, to bring order to the chaos. And anybody who's, you know, cleaned their house knows this happens. Because you clean it, and what happens in a few days? It has to be cleaned again. And if you don't expend the energy to keep bringing order to the chaos, it gets more and more chaotic. And if you've ever been in someone's house that doesn't clean it, you can see it gets worse and worse and worse. It doesn't ever get better. It doesn't ever correct itself. Okay? Unless you input energy. That's what we have to do. So, so we're constantly working against this. We're constantly having to maintain order. We're constantly having to maintain the things that we have to make them continue to work because they break down over time. That's exactly what Paul says that we see if we look at the world and we listen to the world, we can see it, we can hear it. He says the world is groaning. <coughs> he says the world is groaning in hard labor and pain like a woman trying to give birth. But, but here's what Paul says. It's, it's groaning because it expects to be set free. It's groaning in anticipation of the day of its liberation. And so we would say it this way, that future glory is sure because the creation is groaning. Paul says, listen to it. Look at it. It knows, right? 
unthinking, unreasoning creation knows that there's a day of liberation coming. And it's waiting for it. It's groaning under the weight of this distress. It's, 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 but this, Paul says, the groaning of creation is confirmation of the hope of glory to come. And then Paul attaches another point to the first in verse 23. Because he says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Now, we like to joke about this sometimes, but it's really true. Our bodies are groaning. They don't work like they should. They break down. We get sick. We get injured. We get hungry. We get tired. We get worn out. We get stressed. And I'm, that's just talking about our physical bodies, Right? Because as, as believers, we experience this in a spiritual level too, don't we? Don't you ever get tired of the constant struggle with temptation? Don't you ever get tired of fighting against sin and long for the day when your sin nature will be done away with and you won't have to worry about it anymore? You see, on, on every level, Paul says, we groan. <laughs> Our bodies groan. Oops, let's see if that'll go there. Lydia, it's not working. There we go. No. There we go. Our bodies groan. Paul says, the creation groans. Our bodies groan. <laughs> Why? Because they weren't made for this. Remember, Genesis 1, everything is very good, and then sin comes into the world. Our bodies were not made. They were not made to suffer. They were not made to experience breakdown and illness and pain and disease. Our bodies were not made for this in the beginning. God did not create us and design us for this. And so, Paul says, our bodies groan. I like reading in the Bible about certain, some of the people in the Bible who think about Moses. You know that Moses was 80 years old when he saw God at the burning bush? Right? You ever think about that? He's 40 years old when he left Egypt. Spent 40 years in the wilderness learning to be a shepherd. And at 80 years of age, he sees the burning bush. And God says, Moses, I got a job for you. 80 years of age. And God's just, just now getting around to asking Moses to do something for him. And so what does Moses do? He spends the next 40 years leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. 120 years. Or else you read about Caleb. Caleb, after they come out of the wilderness, here's what Caleb says. I'll quote it. Here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. That was when he was 45. And he says, I am as strong today as then. <clears throat> Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, we read about these men and we marvel why do we marvel at men like Moses and Caleb? Because it's not normal to be 80 or 85 years old and have that kind of energy. That's not normal. God, was, God did something for them, unusual. Right? God, God called Moses to do this work, and he enabled Moses to do something at 80 and 100 and 120 that none of us could do. <coughs> and Caleb at 85 says and speaks to how unusual it is that an 85-year-old man would be as strong for war as he was when he was 45. But Caleb has been strengthened by the Lord. The point here is that this is not usual. This is not normal. And so this is on purpose. This is, this is, this is on purpose. God, so here's the thing, right? Paul says our bodies are groaning, but Why? Well, look at verse 40 or verse 24. He says, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Okay, so, so what is Paul saying here? He says, We were saved in hope. We were saved by believing God's promises of salvation. Right? When we got saved, we believed that God was indeed going to deliver us from sin. 
that he was going to deliver us from death, that he was going to deliver us from suffering. We believe those promises. That's why we're saved, because we believe those promises and we continue to believe them. When we believed in Jesus, we had hope in him. We had a confident expectation that he would do everything God had promised. That's why we believed on him, because we thought, you know what? He says he can save us. He says he can deliver us. I'm going to trust him. But what if God had given us all of that up front? What if the moment we trusted in Jesus and we got saved, he took us right up to heaven and, and said, okay, that's it. No more sin, no more suffering, no more death. You, you escape. You're free. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But here's what Paul says there in verse 24 we just read. He says, if we see it, then it's no longer hope. So, in other words... If, if he saved us and took us immediately to heaven and gave us all of these promises immediately upon our salvation, we would not have to be waiting patiently for God to keep his promises. We would not have to hope for it because we would see it. Paul says, we hope for things we do not see right now by waiting patiently for God to keep his promises through Christ. So why is it that we are experiencing suffering right now? Because God is teaching us to hope in Christ. He's teaching us to wait patiently. You say, yeah, it's hard. I know. It's hard to be patient. It's really hard for a two-year-old to be patient and wait, right? And if you're, if you're a parent, you know what it's like to deal with a two-year-old who doesn't want to wait. Or if you've ever been a teacher in a two-year-old classroom. Any, most of us have had experience at some point in dealing with a little kid that just cannot wait. But the reality is most of us as adults are just like a two-year-old and we cannot wait. And we get really bent out of shape when things just don't happen the way we want to or when we want them to happen. And I'm tired of waiting, and I'm tired of it not working, and I'm tired of God not coming true yet. And Paul says, that's what hope is all about. We hope for things that we don't see. We wait confidently. We wait expectantly, knowing that in Jesus Christ, every single one of those things will be. But they're not today. And so we wait. Now, there's a third confirmation here of the hope of glory. And it goes along with the same theme in verse 26 and verse 27. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. <coughs> for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, here is the best part. The creation groans. Our bodies groan, but you know what? The Spirit of God groans. Paul says the Spirit groans, and this also gives us confirmation. This gives us reason for hope that the Spirit is groaning. Why? What is our biggest problem as we try to wait patiently for the redemption of our bodies and for the redemption of all of creation? Our biggest problem is we don't know what God is doing in our circumstances right now, right? I can't tell how what I'm experiencing now fits into this big plan of God. I'm supposed to wait expectantly, wait confidently, trusting that God is going to fulfill all of his good promises one day. But I just can't see how this right now fits into that. It just doesn't make sense to me, right? We lack that perspective. We lack that understanding. And I think this is in Paul's mind. Paul says, we don't know how to pray for what we, uh, I'm sorry, we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. In other words, that's our problem. We don't know what is, I don't know how to pray about the circumstances that I'm in right now because I don't know how they fit into the big plan, the big picture. 
So I don't even know what to do. I don't know what to pray about this. I don't know what to think about this. Because I don't see how it fits. I don't see the, 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 the puzzle and how this piece fits into the puzzle. I just don't get it. Paul says, that's the problem. We're weak. We don't know what to pray for. And because we don't know what to pray for, sometimes we don't pray at all. Because I don't know what to pray for. So I just get, I just, just, I get, I can't even, can't even move. I can't do anything. Or other times, we ask amiss. That's what James calls it. Right? We ask for something, but James says we ask amiss because we have a bad motive. We have a wrong motive. I want something so I can consume it in my desires, my lusts, James says. That's asking amiss. Also, because we don't understand what's going on. We don't understand how this circumstance fits into God's plan. And so sometimes I ask wrongly. I pray wrongly. But remember, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about our suffering. How many times do we pray and ask God to take away our pain? To remove our suffering? To wipe away our tears? And these are all things that God has promised he's going to do in the future day of glory, but we want them now. I think that is at least partly this idea here. If we want to think of asking amiss when we pray wrongly, when it comes to suffering, our prayers often are for the wrong things. I want God to remove the suffering. I want God to remove the pain. I want God to wipe away the tears. I want God to take away the struggle. But Paul says this, and this is so important. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit came to live inside you. And what he does is he intercedes to God the Father for you. He prays for you with groanings that are so deep, words cannot even express them. I like the way W.H. Griffith Thomas put it. He said, God, who is greater than our hearts, understands us perfectly. And while our lips may be unable to utter anything, the Holy Spirit is all the while making intercession with it. Paul says, you know, you're in the middle of suffering. You can't even pray. You don't know what to pray. When you do pray, oftentimes you pray wrong. We're so mixed up. We're so lost in this. But you know what? The Holy Spirit is with you. And the Spirit of God is praying all the time. He is groaning. And that groaning should give us confidence. Now, there's something more, to another aspect of this in verse 27, because the Spirit understands our hearts perfectly. But verse 27 says he also knows the mind of God. Right? He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You see, the Holy Spirit never asks amiss. He intercedes according to the will of God. Let me, let me just insert one thing that Paul doesn't say here. I think it's, it's understood. He, the Spirit, intercedes to God for you. He intercedes according to God's will for you all the time, perfectly in every circumstance. But here's one thing the Holy Spirit doesn't do is he doesn't tell you what God's will is in your present circumstances. In other words, he knows God's will. He knows what God is doing in your life. He knows it perfectly because he is God. But Paul says he prays for us. He does it with words that cannot even be uttered. What he doesn't do is he doesn't open the window and say, let me, tell, let me, let me show you. Let me tell you what, what, what I'm doing. Oftentimes this is happening and Paul is indicating here we're not even aware of it. This is intended to be a great comfort for us. We have the Spirit of God to help us in our weakness, but we also must have faith. We must believe that God knows and prays, that the Spirit knows and prays for us according to God's perfect will, but he doesn't consult us on that. He doesn't tell us what he's praying. He doesn't tell us these things. We have to trust him. We don't get to see it. 
And I'm convinced that even if we could see it, we wouldn't understand it because he says there's groanings that cannot even, <coughs> excuse me, cannot be even put into words. We would not comprehend it. There's something here that we must just trust the Lord. Comfort ourselves in knowing that the Spirit of God is praying on our behalf. Now, there's a final note of confirmation. It's a big one. A lot of ink has been spilled on these verses in theological debates. I don't plan to enter into any of that today. Because for the purpose of Paul's point, it's irrelevant. Paul's point is that our present suffering assures us of future glory. Remember, we have to go through the suffering with Christ to get to the glory together with him that's going to come. That's Paul's point in this passage. So look at what he says in verse 28, down to verse 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul, in this paragraph, begins with the conclusion. We know this principle. Paul says, we know this. This isn't something that we... We, we, we think, or we might know, or we could... He says we know this. The word here speaks of, of the certainty of knowledge. We as Christians know that this is true. And what is it that we know that is intended to bring comfort and confidence of our future inheritance? Well, it's this, God's providence and purpose. God's providence and purpose. <clears throat> when we speak of providence here, I'm speaking of God's ability to use all things in such a way that the outcome is exactly what he desires. This is something, in fact, Albert and I had a conversation about this, I don't know, sometime in the last couple weeks, I don't remember exactly what day it was. But I was, we were talking about the fact that when I speak about something, when I make a plan or I say I'm going to do something, I can't guarantee that that's actually going to happen. Right? I could say I'm going to mow the lawn tomorrow. But there's a hundred things that could happen between now and then that may keep me from mowing the lawn tomorrow. So my best intentions of doing that are limited by the fact that I can't control everything. I can't make sure, I can't guarantee that outcome. Nothing I can do. There are a lot of things that can happen that would be totally out of my control that would keep me from mowing the lawn tomorrow, right? That doesn't mean I'm dishonest if I don't do it after I said I was going to do it. Sometimes that's just, that's what happens, right? We have good intentions. We plan, but we can't guarantee it. Here's the difference. God, in his providence, can plan something and can guarantee that it will come to pass because he's able to use everything. Everything that, it, that happens, he's able to use that to guarantee that his plan and purpose um, comes to pass. And so God's providence. On the other hand, we have God's purpose. God's purpose is the desired end toward which he is working all things. So there is a goal that God has in mind. And God has the ability to make sure that that goal happens. That's what Paul is talking about here. And he says, we as Christians know that this is true. We absolutely know it for sure. And what is it that Paul says is the end goal? We already read it. Paul says the end goal of God's providence is that we who are saved there in um, verse, uh, this is in verse 29 that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, it's Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, God's purpose in this world, his design and his intent in creating this world and ruling the world the way that he does, is to make many brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. 
People who are conformed to the image of Jesus, the Son of God. So this is what I would call the big picture answer to the question that I asked at the beginning of the message. Why doesn't God, why didn't God eradicate sin and suffering right away? Why didn't he eradicate it immediately when Adam and Eve sinned? Because his plan from even before the beginning was that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. And so your adoption to God's family and your conformity to the image of Jesus Christ is a part of this grand design of all of creation and history. And in order to ensure that this would happen, God in his providence works all things together to that good end. This includes especially the suffering that we experience right now. And I love the way Paul puts this when he says in verse 30, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Because what Paul is saying here is that every step of the way, God assures that it will happen. Every step is certain. Not only did God foreknow, but he also predestined. Then he called, then he justified, and then he glorified. And I love the fact that Paul uses the past tense of the word glorified here. Because glorification is what we're looking for. That's the hope. That's the future thing. That's what we're waiting is glory together with Christ. And Paul says, past tense, it's been accomplished. Just as certainly as every other step along the way, because God is is taking every one of the trillions of events that happen in this universe every moment, and he is bending them to his will to bring about his purpose. More than that, he is, he, is bringing, he is bringing them to pass for that end. Everything is serving the end of God. And so we ask the question, what is, go, what is God doing in the world today? What is God doing in your life today? What is he doing in your suffering? What is he doing in your grief? What is he doing in your frustration, what is he doing in your weakness? He is working out his goodwill to conform you to the image of Jesus. So what does that do for us then? What does this, this absolutely certain knowledge do for us right now? Well, I just want to, I, I just encourage you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I'm just going to read it to you and then we'll be done. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. This is what this means for you and me right now. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have that things are not spinning out of control. 
Not only that, we have assurance that your plan, your choice to allow the world as we see it to continue, your choice to delay that final day of judgment and restoration, your choice to do that is a part of this great plan and purpose for which you are taking each of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And you are shaping us. And you are molding us. And you are, are, are conforming us to the image of your Son. So that one day we will stand before you as your sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, and we will look like Christ. And we will be truly made to be like our Savior, the one we love so dearly, the one we trust with our life and eternity. We will be like him. And that's what you're doing today. You're working that plan and purpose out in every moment and every area of our life, difficult as those may be, hard and inscrutable as they often are. Father, I pray that you would comfort us. Help us to learn this hope, this confident expectation as we wait patiently for what we do not see today. And all we long for that day to come soon. We see the suffering in our world and it grieves our hearts. We know that it must grieve yours. We pray for your will as you bring about these things. Lord, conform us first of all. Change us. I pray that you would, would stir our hearts with a renewed fervor to love you and follow you and trust in you even in the midst of dark days as we anticipate the glory that is to come. And I pray today, again, if there is one person who is hearing this message, who has never repented and bowed their knee, confessed that they're sinners, confessed that you are the Lord of lords, that you are the one to whom they owe their allegiance. Father, I pray that they would repent and cry out to you for mercy and forgiveness. They would receive the salvation that you offer freely, the spirit that would come and indwell them and begin this process in them of conforming them to the image of Christ. And Lord, we trust you with these things and pray that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen.